Hi, everybody. This is Dennis Black. Welcome to the Black and Wyatt Records podcast, where we talk to artists who've worked with us on record or behind the scenes. This week, artist and filmmaker Mike McCarthy talks with Oxford, Mississippi musician and author Tyler Keith about his latest record, Hell to Pay, his book, The Mark of Cain, and other projects. It's Tyler Keith, uh, by way of Florida, by way of Mississippi, uh, by way of Memphis. Might want to throw in, I don't know, what any other countries? That's probably it, yeah. Is that it? Yeah. I thought you were in Australia for a while. No, no. no. I have relatives, came, my, my families came from Scotland and Ireland, I guess. Can you prove that? My, uh, my dad did a bunch of that stuff, yeah. He proved it. Yeah, Okay. Right. It. They got a Keith, Keith Castle over there and stuff. A Keith? Keith. Oh, oh, a Keith Keith Castle. Castle. Yeah. Anyway, do you still have it? I don't. I don't think so. Tell us what you do exactly. Well, I mean, um, well, artfully, I guess. Artfully, um, well, I try to make stuff like uh, I like to make records and uh, like uh, I like to take photographs. I like to write 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 stuff. Probably stems from being like a little kid in the Baptist church with the, you know, you, you get the little pamphlet of the, and then you just draw on it the whole time and write stuff. You know what I mean? I don't even well, know. What I mean. Well, your dad was a preacher. Well, mm-hmm. he was more like a lay preacher. He was actually a dentist. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. He did some lay preaching. What does lay preaching mean? That means just like he wasn't an actual pastor, but if they needed a fill-in every now and then. So you grew up in a Baptist church in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, religious school, you know, they didn't call them evangelicals back then. Mm -hmm. They were just kind of like. Explain. Well, just like, you know, there was no rock and roll or dancing allowed at the school. I went to a regular Southern Baptist church. That was like very liberal compared to the school. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you had Bible class and, you, you know, for, and I went from kindergarten to 12th grade. Well, but instead of I, marijuana, I mean, they found your Chuck Berry records. Right. Well, my parents were into rock and roll, but, oh. but my dad was actually in into bluegrass and stuff. I had a bluegrass band. Well, bluegrass will get you into heaven. That will get you into but, heaven. But rock and roll, mm-hmm. maybe not. You know, and I I was learned to play guitar, play bluegrass guitar and stuff. You know, but by the time you're like eleven or something, I wanted to be like Pete Townsend. What what year were you born? I was born in 1970. Okay, so you're the same age as a lot of people that I worked with in the 90s, like Delena and, yeah. and the Starlet Crowd and and uh, Kim and all those people, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. And then, of course, you, you catch MTV with that certain mm-hmm. period. But what did you get turned on to? Or how did you actually begin to find the real stuff? Was it when you moved to Mississippi? Well, no. You, I to, mean, you, you moved know, to go to school, right? I did move to go to school. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I had an older brother and older sister. And uh, they would send me stuff from college that they, you know, and like also in high school in Pensacola, there were a lot of all ages punk rock shows mm-hmm. you know there was a lot of at the, like there was a place called um the dmz which was an old country bar called the fire and fiddle and they just spray painted dmz on there and would have 
punk rock shows in there, you know, and then uh, what you did, or you would go to shows. I would go to shows. Mm -hmm. I I tried to have a band with some friends. We had a little band, punk rock band, but I, I it called Meager Existence. But uh, <laughs> we never actually played out. Is that I, your hardcore name? Yeah, I didn't come. Yeah, I didn't come up with it, but I I couldn't play fast because I was like kind of into like. The Who and stuff somewhat. I loved the 60s music since I was little, you know, like, mm -hmm. and I loved punk rock, but I couldn't play fast. And then, but, uh, but you transcended the Who eventually and went and it well, led where they took you. Yeah. Into other 60s RB. Uh, right. Yeah. And, you know, like I'd always was, <clears throat> I remember finding, you know, finding the Nuggets album as a kid. I did a lot of thrift store stuff in high school and mm -hmm. like there was, uh and there was like a um you found nuggets at a thrift store i did and you know there's in the 1986 you could find stuff like that you know like mm -hmm. and uh there was also a big um flea market that we would go to that had these records that was kind of, that were kind of like uh just like almost there was just like like a tin roof over it. there was no so they were kind of like they were be kind of, kind of rotten almost, but the vinyl would be fine. Right. And it was a buck, you know, so right. you could find a lot of records. Well, when did you move to Oxford? Well, I came to to Mississippi College on a track scholarship in the eight the fall. Track of scholarship. Cross country and track. I was run. I was a runner. <laughs> you know, and then I kind of I had an older brother there that was better than I would ever be. As a runner, into my old Miss in Oxford, Mississippi. And, well, this was Mississippi College in Clinton, Mississippi, oh, Jackson. Oh, I went okay. there for two years, and uh, <laughs> what years were those? That was eighty, the fall of eighty-eight through um, the fall of like ninety. Okay, and there was a place WC Don's there that had a lot of punk rock bands, and mm -hmm. went to the, a lot of those shows. There was also a place called Subway Lounge that was a blues club um, that was you know like midnight to six club and i saw a lot of blues stuff there and then i came to ox i was living in oxford in the summers from starting in 89 my sister had come up to oxford and there was a lot of great there was a place called sid and harry's and that 89 i saw chilton there alex chilton there and uh there was a lot of great bands there, there was, and they, they they started having blues night, which was uh, Thursday nights at this place, and they started having uh, Junior Kimbrough and R.L. Burnside and uh, you know Booba Barnes and like uh, like Frank Frost and Sam. Did Charlie Carr. Feathers be there? Charlie Feathers, I never saw him there. <laughs> mm -hmm. But now, were you and, still uh, into sports or running? No, <laughs> I, I really wasn't into that in college. But mm -hmm. I, my parents, my dad, they didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. So it was like I wanted to get away from home. So they, I'll go to school. And I I started drinking a lot of beer. You know, and it was like, <laughs> so. And uh, Does it not make you run faster? No, it makes you run very slow. Oh, okay. So that's why I was, I lost my scholarship. <laughs> and, uh. I was a passenger in a few car accidents at the time uh, and uh, sustained an injury. And the the coach was basically like, you can run in the spring, but not under scholarship. If you do well, you can come back. And I was like, nah. You know, it was kind of like, to me, running was kind of like, it's a real 
individual sport. It's real in your own mind type thing, you know, like, and I, I really liked it when I was healthy and young. Mm -hmm. I really liked, you know, the, I think it's the same kind of experience as playing a, a rock, rock and roll show, sort of mm. like you're in your own brain. You got to do this. You're living you, your potential. You live in the second as well, <clears throat> you know, just mm -hmm. one foot in front of the it's like you're playing guitar. Exactly. That's what's so great about live <laughs> music, playing live. It's, you don't, it's the only time you really live in the second. What's coming next. Right. You know what I mean? And yeah. It's just, you ever played a show and you like at the end, it was like, what, what are we even playing? You don't even remember, like, did we play such and such a song? Like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, we played that. I don't remember what we talked about. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. But well, it, you know so, okay, so, so you're, in, you're in Oxford. I met a guy named Paul Tucker there. You remember Paul? Um, and he had a band. He was trying to start something up. And he was like, do you play bass? And I lied. I was like, yeah. But I had learned <laughs> stand-up bass. But I started playing with him in a band called the Sky Pilots. Sky Pilots. Yeah. How many years did that go? That went about two years, two and a half years. And we were coming up here and playing with, we played with uh, uh, the Compulsive Gamblers. And that kind of blew my mind, really, watching them. Like, I just like, you can have, like, horns and stuff. So tracing know? it back, 91 is the year that you sort of discovered Memphis or the garage scene yeah. at as yep. it's called. I don't know what else you, to me, it's yeah. a rock and roll scene. But, it was rock and roll scene. But it was, it was also as, like the grifters yeah, were yeah. really great at that point too. And, yeah. you know. The um, decade was starting. The the country rockers and stuff and, mm -hmm. and Cav Fowler. There was a lot, just weirdness mm -hmm. that I was just, and, and Memphis looked like, still does, like a noir film. Mm -hmm. You know, these back streets. It was, mm -hmm. And I loved that and, you know, started going to Shangri-La Records. And did, and did you catch Antenna and, Club? or did, uh, were Yeah, you all we about... played at the Antenna a lot. Okay. So you were there before Barristers sort of took over. Yeah. Yeah. And and, <clears throat> and into Barristers kind of right when that started coming out. But uh, and So you came up. Both. So the Sky. Sky Pilots. Sky Pilots came up and opened for the Gamblers. How did y'all know Jack or Greg or? We were coming to the show. We just started coming to shows up here and hanging out mm -hmm. at the Shangri-La record. Yeah. Well, I, I bought that single that you, with your amazing draw cover art. The Gamblers. The Gamblers, yeah. you know, and like, yeah. I just thought they were so really great band and like the coolest people yeah i'd ever seen you know like, well they were also able then to come to oxford and play yeah and we were we were switching out shows there was a place called the hoka theater that i, I was working hoka. with yeah. i mean i was working there at that with at ron. the hoka with ron shapiro and yeah. he would let i would be like hey can i have some bands here next friday or something yeah. like yeah nope wait till after the movie or whatever because they were showing film they're showing movies yeah. So after like the ten o'clock show, we could have you know, bands, or if he didn't, have, you know. So 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 were you really at the heart of a scene that exploded, or I say exploded, happened, however it happened in Oxford, it, that that would define sort of like mirror what was happening in Memphis with with uh, the Gamblers and then the Oblivions and Impala and the Grifters and all those kind of things. Yeah, some somewhat. You know, we were coming up here a lot, and then there was another. There was a a band that was a three-piece band that we played a couple of shows with in around 93, early 93, called the Neckbones. Mm -hmm. They were a three-piece band, 
and then they wanted to have um, another singer and a guitar player as well as um, and also during the summer these guys were in college still at Ole Miss, two, at Ole Miss and two of the guys went home for the summer now tell me who these people are this was David Boyer um, Forrest Hughes was the drummer and Robbie Alexander was the bass player and Dave, David Boyer was a guitar player both David and Forrest uh, were future members of the Cool Jerks mm -hmm. with Scott Rogers mm -hmm. and uh, Jack Oblivion. Mm -hmm. So they, I moved in with Forrest for the summer, and uh, we st they had their stuff set up in the attic, my attic room. Like there was no air conditioning, so it was like. So you lived off campus. I lived off campus. I never lived on the Ole Miss campus. Okay. But, uh, so you were allowed to have noise, make noise. Yeah. <clears throat> In 93. 93. And it was a lot. It was kind of like a small, a lot smaller and really cheap. And uh, what what uh, were you bringing to the band? Well, you know, like Forrest was the singer and he was the drummer. And he's a really powerful drummer and a great singer. So he, I think they wanted to, he wanted a little break. And I was just bringing, I was brand new. I was just starting to write songs. So. I really, me and Forrest and another couple, a couple of people, um, had just one night went up to Bruce Watson's studio from later of Fat Possum and recorded a couple, like four songs. So I think it was kind of like Stooges kind of style stuff, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and real kind of that kind of thing. Why, why did you? Is that what you brought to them was the Stooges' interest, or was yeah. that something they had already? I mean, they had it as well, but you know, like, uh, why were you guys into stuff which might have been considered marginalized or or very nominal uh, as far as interest? Well, yeah. like I, those guys, as well as I, you know, as well as I had, they they had played in high school, and like they were, we were all into the replacements and who's to do. And also like music nerds, so read every book there was, and you find out the rabbit hole type things. But you're in yeah. Oxford too, which is an intellectual haven, right? And actually, I, I forgot to mention that the reason I came, main reason I came to Oxford was there was a writer in residence there, Barry Hanna, who's mm -hmm. an amazing. He's kind of a short story genius and mm -hmm. i went to take and i took his classes and uh that was kind of what i was wanting to do mm -hmm. but uh to be a writer even then yeah more yeah. so really you were you were channeling being a book writer more so than a songwriter or they were yes okay definitely okay. and then like i kind of happened across paul tucker and i was in the student union and uh i saw him and we had kind of known each other or he knew some, we knew some of the same people from Jack, he was from okay. Jackson, Mississippi. So we knew some of the same people and were like, hey, and he was like, do you, do you play bass? And I was like, yeah. So the neck bones are form or yeah. become a five piece the same year that the Oblivions. A four piece. Four piece. Just, just about the same as the Oblivions, about the right. same time, yes. So, and the Oblivions yeah. actually were the first. They gave. Mm -hmm. They let us open for them up here at the Antenna, mm -hmm. and that was. And they paid us a mm -hmm. lot. No. Yeah, they gave us like two hundred and fifty dollars. 
because the show was packed and it was like they were like here's your cut i'm like what i think the rate is still 250 it is it's still five dollars <laughs> at the door well okay but, uh, so and then and then uh you know we were making movies and uh i showed yeah. teenage tupelo at the hoka yeah. and you yeah. guys the neck bones played right uh and that was the very first screening of teen teenage tupelo in 90 august 95 august 5th 95 but we started recording up here we recorded up here first with jared mcstay because we started playing with the simple ones up mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. a lot uh -huh. which i think at first were the simple tones and yeah. they became the simple ones and they played with us in the hoka several times and they were one of my favorite bands here mm -hmm. and jared recorded us at his house oh wow yeah and uh he had a basement in midtown in midtown mm -hmm. yeah and we put out uh our own uh for a cd called um pay the rent and then uh what year was that that was probably 94 95 <clears throat> But, uh, I remember uh, you mentioned the Stooges earlier. I remember me and Kim and Victoria Renard and the guys in Impala. Uh, trying to think who else. Sharon Selvin, maybe a friend of Vic's. We all piled in my car and we drove to Oxford because maybe I don't know whose house it was. Maybe it was your house. <laughs> <laughs> there was a house party going on and and. You guys were playing, yeah. and but when you weren't playing, uh, the Stooges' fun house was on the turntable, yeah. and I have never, I never heard, and never will ever hear fun house like I heard it at yeah. your house, <laughs> yeah, like like that again, and that was really the first time I think I'd ever really hung out with you, yeah, to any degree. That's right. And yeah. uh, thank you for. Well, well <laughs> it's funny because I at that time my first, I got my first car. When I was about twenty-one in Oxford for five hundred bucks, it was a, it was a, a Datsun five ten hatchback, and I had the fun house cassette got stuck in the tape deck <laughs> for about two years, but I didn't, I didn't care. Two years, yeah, until the car burned up and uh, on the side of the road outside of Birmingham, playing fun house, playing fun house, yeah. and I pushed it into this Christian school parking lot. And took anything that had my name on it out of the car and just left it. <laughs> and then we were driving by a year later to go play in like Atlanta or something, and it was still in the parking lot. I always thought that was hilarious. <laughs> but yeah, T tell me your Iggy story. You told me a while back. My sister was at in tax law school at NYU at that time, and I went up to visit her, and. People that are planning careers like that fascinate me. I, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. She's brilliant. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, Go ahead. No. Yeah. Iggy is signing his record at the Tower Records on Broadway down there or something. And, and I'm like, go down there to see Iggy, you know? Sure. It's like American Caesar record. And, like, uh, I was waiting in line. I got up there. And, like, I guess he could tell I wasn't from. And he was like, where are you from? I was like. Well, I, I'm from, you know, Oxford, Mississippi. And he's like, well, oh, yeah, no shit. I, I just was recorded this in New Orleans and I'd never been to Mississippi. And I drove up to Natchez and had to drive over to Faraday to see where Jerry Lee was born. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow. I was like, well, my friend Bruce Watson's studio at the time was called Zombie Birdhouse after the Iggy album. And I was like, well, my friend has got a studio and he's re they're recording a lot of his 
blues black people in North, in North Mississippi, specifically Junior Kimbrough, who's like, to me, the stooges of the blues. You know, it's like these riffs. And he's like, oh, check it out. And so the next week, Iggy calls Bruce. And uh, Bruce thought it was me because he was like, oh, yeah, whatever. He's like, no, this is actually Iggy. And so they ended up, Junior ended up touring with them. Tell me, though, pick back up, if you would, please, with um, your Memphis-Oxford kind of love affair type thing you're doing and and the neck bones are coming back and forth. Can you lead me through a little uh, timeline there of how the neck bones uh, finished up and the records that you did and then build into the stuff that you put out on Black and White or things in between? Yeah. Well, quickly, you know, we started playing, like we, we were playing these big shows in Oxford and the Fat Possum label did not have any white rock and roll acts. Mm-hmm. And like they were coming to these shows and they, you know, just, they were really just kind of really exciting. And they, they signed us up, you know, like the original founder of Fat Possum was Peter Lee. And then um, Matthew Johnson took over at some point. I, I don't know that whole story, but. Um, Anyway, we'd made two records with them. We had some contentious relationship there, but uh, mm-hmm. and then um, and then basically sometime around the year two thousand, <laughs> our uh, nineteen ninety nine, our bass player kind of quit, moved on, and Forrest, our drummer, was living up here, and David was living, Boyer was living up here, and then. They were getting married and like having starting a family and, and getting jobs and stuff and doing stuff and moved up to Nashville. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of obsessing about songs and stuff. I had a bunch of a bunch of songs. So somewhere around two thousand, I just uh, our last record on Fat Possum barely came out because there this is our second fist fight with the label owners which I, it's not really a good way to get along with literally literally yeah literally what is it the whole band was fist fighting pretty much the second time yeah i, I don't know if i want to go into the right. whole, all the details but basically we didn't have a label yeah. we didn't really have a, a, a bass player and uh, so i just kind of recorded an album with there was a a band in, in Oxford, a great band called Blue Mountain, really great, <clears throat> exceptional band. I'm very close friends with them. And Carrie Hudson, the singer, guitar player, his cousin was at a studio and starting a label in South Mississippi. So I basically got Blue Mountain to back me up on a record. And, uh, and I just called that band The Preacher's Kids because mm-hmm. I really didn't have a band. But they were kind of wild it was kind of we oxford was like at peak wildness at that point what do you mean well just i mean what year this was probably 2000 Mm -hmm. just a lot of and the bars closed early so there was a lot of late night parties Mm -hmm. and there were four or five people so basically it was every night of extreme and i was just 29 if i was just kind of thought I was invincible and just had a lot of 
it was just like a rock and roll thing going on there with that. But so. you hadn't started writing books or anything, or no. You know, I'd been I'd written some short stories in college, and I continued to write some things. But mm-hmm. um, and my writing teacher Hannah had said you're gonna have to choose between songs and stories, you know. But and he was I became obsessed with songs. That's what they told me yeah. in math in grad school, and I didn't want to choose because I saw exactly. because of that's all right in Blue Moon of Kentucky. I saw a hybrid nature to pop culture, right? So it's Same. like you know, why yeah. do you have to? Why can't you involve all your interest into one big melting pot of like an idea? Yeah, it may not have it may not have commercial value, right? Well, I've come to realize not much has commercial value. Well, but I, I'm kind of uh, you know art for art's sake. I'm not a good ender of things you know like i just kind of like, like this interview like this interview yeah. yeah i'd like to ramble on so but then i, I kind of went so somebody has to come to you in the band and say tyler it's over someone well the drummer actually had been in blue mountain and he joined back when blue mountain had a we weren't really doing anything and they had a reunion thing so he started doing that and i just kind of stopped playing and then started another band instead of breaking up um the other one right so because I, I didn't know how to do that and what was um, the other band? that was the apostles okay. and we just started as a three-piece kind of just i really didn't have any type of ideas for i just wanted to play what year would that be that was 2009 maybe mm-hmm. at the same time i went back to school and finished my undergrad and then applied for the mfa program in writing and did not get accepted, but they were only taking like two or three people a year. And I did not get in there, but I got into the Southern Studies master's program. What's the difference? Southern Studies is like, uh, it's an interdisciplinary thing, but there was a big focus at the um, on documentary uh, expression, like photography and documentary film. So visuals, uh, visuals, yeah. as well as you know, you learn the oral history and things like that, you know, and, and southern. It's like southern history, literature, um, culture, all of that, food, you know. That's so. I got a master's at in that at that time. Got the master's degree, and I enjoyed it. It was great, and uh, they did they they didn't really tell me what to do with it. Or how to get some work for it. How to get a job. Although, although <clears throat> plenty, almost everyone else that I went to grad school did immediately get work and something. I think I just have a, you know, a little bit of a fear of like, you know, hey, here's a job for you to be here every day, nine to five. <laughs> so, what, do you, you know, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't know. I think maybe I was afraid of actually getting a, a quote real job I, i'd already at that point probably had close to 20 years in in the restaurant business but at the time i was working at a at at the steak restaurant in oxford that went out of business and i'd heard this quote from uh, this writer robert stone that unemployment is the poor man's guggenheim so I decided, like, I'm going to collect unemployment and just, like, write and play music every day, and like a, a job, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, and I started doing it. was like $130 a week. Like, it was barely enough. 
to pay my rent and eat. But I was actually really happy doing that. And I wrote this like biker musical at that time, you know, and uh, what was that called? It was called the Outlaw Biker. And we performed it a couple of years later in Oxford and filmed it. And we did and uh, published the same publisher who published the novel just put a book book form out of it. I have a copy for you. But, uh, okay. Well, um, okay. And so and that that was and that was so we did that. I did that after grad school, and then um, started making these apostles records. You know, recorded one. Our first one was Jim J D Mark. Remember Jim Mark? He passed away, but um, and then yeah. So that's basically, and then I made then I made the last drag. Uh, now we're jumping ahead here a couple of years or a couple of years we're, yeah okay the last drag i guess it started in, in like 2018 or so we were going to do some neckbone sessions like get back together and the date got fucked up or something i don't know it was probably my fault but the other guys couldn't make it so i just went in there and uh with the with the engineer ronson too was the drummer so we just made some stuff, made like four songs, and then um, whenever they would have downtime in the studio, um, we would go in there and record. And then we had like ten songs. Like, oh, I want this really good. I really like this. Um, mm -hmm. And we just played everything on it. And like, I demoed these songs at home, and actually had met Robert a few times up here at shows. He had come to some of our apostle shows and i just uh, i knew he was putting out great memphis stuff and so i just kind of sent him the stuff and he was like yeah he was really liked it and i think kind of like graham pawed us in sort of the memphis even though not technically from memphis so, right well uh, and you're the first person interviewed on the power of owl that's right. So, uh, but, you know, Black and White is formed in 2018. You guys cut this in 2018. That's when we started the sessions. Yeah. So it's only a matter of time. And I know your name had come up quite a bit in uh, referring to who who was going to come out on the label. And then there was that only Memphis rock and roll. But I, like yeah. you said, it's it's a you got grandpa in. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Held a grandpa. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it is always kind of considered. I'm not the first to say this or anything, but. Memphis is like the capital of Mississippi. Coming to Memphis, like you said, coming to Memphis, man, it was like the, it was the glowing, yeah. you know, beacon of yeah. the hill. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that that's, I mean, I know everything has to change, but why does it always have to like change for the worst? Well, I think that, <laughs> you know, like kind of like New Orleans is like, and Memphis, the South, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shit went down here. <laughs> You know, and, and and you gotta someday pay for it, and deal with it, and mm -hmm. we just refuse to do that in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And it's just like until you do that, it doesn't get better. The way that culture is experienced has changed completely. I feel like for younger people, in a way. Mm -hmm. and that's not their fault i'm not even blaming them it's not bad it's not good it's just the way it is i think like there was a lot less i mean i when i went to college i didn't have a phone most of the time i didn't talk to my parents mm -hmm. like uh, on thanksgiving or something mm -hmm. i would mm -hmm. call, you know 
it was it was a, a real break mm -hmm. as a young person. You know, mm -hmm. you went away, you, you didn't have any money, and you were on your own, and you, you know, you may you didn't have you were it was good to, for me like that. Oh, so catch us up to then the how, how does it how does it work out that you then put out a second record, Hell to Pay, on Black and Wyatt, and uh, I, I want to get into talking about the book a little bit too. But, okay. But, but should you talk about these first? And does the book have sure. anything to do? Were you writing the book in between I these records? I was writing the book at the same time as I was writing a lot of this music. So I had a bunch of backlogs. So I and I wanted <laughs> to do some. I wanted to write a novel. And I started writing it. My thesis was about the Panhandle of Florida, where my dad's side of the family came from, like seventh generation Floridian, which is kind of rare. So I interviewed a bunch of people, shot a bunch of, made a little film down there, took a bunch of photographs, and I talked to a lot of people down there, and I had a lot of material for, and my grandfather, who I was very close to as a, as a kid. What's his name? His name was Vernon Keith. Uh, James Vernon Keith. They call him. People call him JV. But um, and like he he was his father. His father was murdered down in Holmes County, Florida, when he was a two year old, two years old. And he kind of came up real hard in that area of Florida. And so I did a lot of. And, you know, it was kind of like this frontier almost. Like Florida is like almost more like a frontier than like you sort of typical southern you know like plantation area because there, was, there wasn't a lot of the farming wasn't it wasn't like the delta of mississippi or something you know it was a lot of sand like in holmes county like I, there there was like two kinds of people sort of like you were either like a dirt farming christian type that you know didn't really laugh like you know or you were an outlaw bootlegger there was a lot there's a the Chalcahatchee River there flows right into the Gulf of Mexico, and it's this like spring-fed river. So there was a lot of uh, moonshine, bootlegging stuff there, and it was kind of like this frontier. I mean, it's kind of like almost like a Wild West type area. So we're talking yeah. about the this book you've written called The Mark of Cain. Yeah, it's been out now. What? Um, how long is it? It's came out uh, November twenty twenty two, so it's uh, been what? out just over a year. Tell me about the publisher and how you got the, the publisher is Tim and Susan Lee, who are they're in a rock and roll band called Bark, and uh, they had a band called the Tim Lee Three. And Tim Lee was from Jackson, Mississippi, and he he was in a a seminal band, rock and roll power pop band from Jackson called the Windbreakers back in the 80s mm -hmm. and he went on to play with like let's active and uh swimming pool cues and stuff and he wrote an amazing uh, the dvs and he wrote an amazing autobiography called um i saw a dozen faces and rocked them all diary of a never was and he published it himself and did well at it you yeah. know sold a lot of books and was they wanted to put out a uh some other stuff and i was friends with them and actually susan did all the layout for this artwork for these records aha uh -huh. so um I and, was, and it's a great job yeah uh, it looks great she's great if you ever need any work 
and I wrote a first draft and my friend Ace Atkins, who's a great writer, uh, writes a lot about Memphis and Mississippi. And uh, he read it for me and gave me a lot of notes to stuff to do. And I, you know, I was old enough and I decided like, I'm gonna take people's advice, what they say, they know. And my friend, uh, the Lisa Howarth's a great novelist. Melissa Ginsburg, a great novelist and poet from Oxford. And uh, Max Hip, who's in my band, is a great writer. I gave it to everybody that would read it. It's a lot of people didn't read it. I don't blame them. You know, it's a lot to ask. A lot of people did it. They gave me notes. I did everything they said for the most part. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so... It didn't affect the story, though. Did it, it didn't affect the story not much. It, They're well, talking actually, about structure or craft. The structure and just, you know, grammar, spelling, all that. And some structure, like Ace, I only had like 45,000 words or something. He was like, you need to add this whole section, you know, like where he goes back to Holmes County in the book. I didn't even have that. It was more about this halfway house. At what point did you hit a wall, or at what point did the characters save you? Did they? Did the characters tell you what they needed to do? Yeah, kind of in 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 some way, in some sense. But like when I started this, I had a big my big problem in the past writing was I would write a little bit and say this is awful, and just like instead of and I decided I'm going to finish this, whatever it is. I'm going to get to the end, then I'm going to work on it. You know, because I didn't want to believe, you know, writing is rewriting. It's like, that's not sexy or whatever. It's that's true. Work. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and I decided whatever it takes, I'm going to get to the end of this, you know. Like, right. And uh, what does that mean, though? The character is going to have fulfillment or the story is going to have The story is going to come to a beginning, a middle, and end. That's mm -hmm. one thing I learned. Like, but did the ending that you thought you had at the beginning was that the ending you had at the end? Not necessarily, no. Mm -hmm. What what I did, like, and I, I had work, so I would work, uh, and then I had on my job now. I had a lot of downtime during when I had to go back to work. I would obsessively um, make outlines about what I thought was going to happen, and like, and I made an outline even before I started. It it, it changed somewhat, but it. The ending was somewhat similar, and you know, but I, to me, this outlining was very important because it kept the story going in my head. Like I, I'm, I've never, we, I would hear writers talk about just sitting down with a blank page. Like I can't, that's not me. So, at some point, does what you're writing as a novel become better used as a song lyric? Sometimes, you know, and like sometimes how? as a distraction, like. I'll write write a song in the in the you know on the blank page on the other side, and like with know, chords or just words. Sometimes both. A lot of times now, like I'll work at my desk, and then I usually have my guitar and amp plugged in. Mm -hmm. I lived in the, I live out in the country, so if I get kind of stir crazy, I'll sit down and play guitar for a while. I can play really loud at my house. Mm -hmm. So I'll do that. And if I have an idea for a song or some, if I like the riff or something, I'll record it on my phone now. Mm -hmm. And then like, uh, 
I, I write a lot of ideas and like um, to mix and match later. But I, I definitely like the distraction of something else. And like playing guitar for me has always been like, I've never like practiced scales or any of that shit. But I could like to play guitar for a couple of hours sometimes. Well, what's the yeah. new book? Well, I got a new I've got a new book that's called Damaged right now. And it's kind of a teenage punk rock thriller <laughs> set in like nineteen eighty seven, Pensacola, Florida. Uh -huh. And uh it's kind of like a it's like the main characters are these three teenagers, like two kind of punk rock girls sort of. Um and a guy that's uh, a punk rock kid they're, they're kind of and like uh, just sort of like how music and punk rock is and these ideas of art and culture and things can sort of save you in certain sense or create your own identity that's helpful but then there's all, always a danger lurking there like uh i you know abuse and so forth like, is meager existence going to factor into damaged? Yes, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me ask you about these two records real quick, okay. because Black and White is our sponsor. Sure, yeah. Uh, so we, you know, we got to cover our ground here. Tell me real quick, because we may play some cuts off the albums. Okay. Uh, on 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 the on the first album here um, that we put out, uh, the last drag. What what are your Thoughts on the why is the track list that way? What are your standout songs? What are your favorites? Oh, let's um, see. I really, is this the this is not the order they were recorded in? I mean, what what was exactly. the reason? No, I, you know, like I always kind of thought put a lot of time in sequencing. I've mm. always been a fan. As much as I love punk rock, I've always loved the Rolling Stones as one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. I thought you were going to say one of the greatest sequencers. They are. Great the <laughs> they are. Yeah. yeah That's what yeah, I was saying. Yeah. Like, I, you know, like let it bleed. Yes. And like, uh, those, I think that's like a perfectly yeah. sequenced album. Right. And like, uh, love in vain has to be second. It does. Yeah. yeah. And there's, <laughs> you know, it starts out with, uh, what is it? Is it give me shelter or like, uh, anyway, I've always yeah. thought a lot about sequencing. And you need a flow and you need to put your kind of your favorite songs in certain places. Yes. I like all the songs on here a lot mm -hmm. in some ways. And it was partially because I didn't think about anything that I, I didn't really. It, two things like I had demoed all these songs at home, almost all of these. So I knew the parts that I wanted on on there. I, the guitar part usually i have a guitar player in the band and i don't tell them what to play that's why you know they're there play what you like i might suggest something but here i played everything the way i wanted it and um and also you in a band you sort of gear things towards the strengths of that band or whatever mm -hmm. and uh this i just liked all i just didn't care really and i just made what i wanted and i sort of like i i kind of part of the last drag idea was like this might be my last record like i don't you your know, last race it might be yeah and, and, and it wasn't it turned out it wasn't but
Born Again Virgin is a very fun song to play. But the thing is, like, I had a person that reviewed it and said, this tongue-in-cheek song. It's like, no, this is not. I was at a point where, like, I don't want to mess around. I want to find, you know, I'm going to wait, you know, somebody I really like to get involved or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so, I love the drag racing albums of the 60s, mm -hmm. late 60s. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, that, that was kind of the 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 reason for the cover you know like, sure it was just kind of a joke but I like uh, it's it. it's one of our it's one of the best black and white covers it's very striking and it it's it and it speaks to uh you know the subset of of, of rock and roll ideology 20th century stuff it's it's yeah. great but were there any songs that you recorded for last drag that wound up on 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 this record on well, Bobby, we were playing uh, some of these by the time uh you know, I, and I, I still had recorded some of these at home during the time, this time. Like, mm -hmm. And Ghost Rider had actually been recorded at Easley Studio with the Preacher's Kids. Oh. It burned up in fire. And we lost our record at that time. Mm -hmm. And the Easley fire. And I you still, lost your whole record? Yes, we lost our whole record. What and year was that fire? 2006, maybe. Okay. Um, on Dedrick over there off Lamont. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I put all my money into it and everything. We got we got like, you know, we got hotels up here, and we came up and like it burned up. And there was a guy in Oxford, um, Andrew Ratcliffe was. It's like just come into my studio and record it. Is that there not, was is a, that not a story? I mean, it is a great story, yeah. but a, a terrible story. We were having a lot of bad luck at this time, and that was the culmination. And that was kind of when I said, you know what. I'm kind of done. I'm going to put this out. And there was a version of Ghost Rider that survived from it, but it sounded really, really bad. But I put it on the record anyway, and I always regret it. On, on this record? No, no. I oh. put it on the, we put out a Preacher's Kids record. Mm -hmm. Okay. That we re recorded everything, except I really liked the performance of the one at Easley, and we had mm -hmm. like just a burned disc of it. And it sounded really terrible. <laughs> And I put it on there anyway, and I always wanted to re-record it and do it justice because I like that song, Ghost Rider.
So this version that's on the black and white record, we re-recorded it. Re-re-re-recorded it. Yeah, <laughs> re-re-re-recorded it. I wanted to save it because I love that song, or I I, I enjoy playing that song, mm -hmm. and, and I wanted to sort of give it a second life. And yeah. but is there is there any song that you favor here, or like your sequencing or? Mm -hmm. And Edge of the City is kind of about like a guy who lives kind of, I was thinking about 78 coming in when it turns into Lamar, kind of like. I've traveled Lamar into Mississippi for 40 years or yeah. whatever. It's unchanged. It's unchanged. It's still I know, it's weird. And, you know, like I've had people come to me and like maybe say, well, hey, you know, could you come up with some concepts, sculpture, whatever, to make like Sam Cooper coming into Memphis you know, more hospitable, but nobody's worried about airways yeah. from the airport and yeah. nobody is sure as hell no. not worried about Lamar. Yeah, This yeah. is what you're getting when you come into town. <laughs> and I did mention the Lamar Motel in there, although I've never oh my been God. there myself. And, but, well, uh, well, hell to pay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
Well, hey, man, I, thank you for, for thank coming you. into the very first podcast episode of, of uh, Black and Wyatt's uh, Power of Hour. Thank you, man. I hope I didn't I ramble on too much. I really enjoyed it. I, 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 I was like encouraging you to ramble on. And I really love Black and Wyatt, what they're doing, and I appreciate so much being on on this label. It means a lot. It's been, and there's so much great music coming out on it. Is there a third Your record band? for you? Uh, at at the, the moment, I'm just kind of working on some songs, but I, I don't really mm -hmm. have anything. I'm trying to work on this book and mm -hmm. some other things. What about scoring your own books? I've done. I've been doing a lot of instrumental stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I did that for some documentaries. I ended up the master's program. They ended up having an MFA in documentary expression a couple of years after I graduated, and they uh, contacted me like, "Why don't you come back? It's in the same program. You just do a project." So yeah. So you got some stuff happening I have some for twenty twenty three or twenty four. What year are we in? Twenty four. I'm, sure. I'm not either. It's barely started. But yeah. thank you for coming on, and we're going to play some of your music, and I'm going to film you in your natural environment tomorrow, and we're going to put out a little doc of our own, and then we'll awesome. put it on YouTube and go from there. Okay, great. Thank, thank you, you, Tyler. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. You've just heard Tyler Keith interviewed by Mike McCarthy on the Black and White Records podcast. Tyler's albums, Last Drag and Hell to Pay, are available on Black and White vinyl records and may be purchased at blackandwhiterecords.com. The Hell to Pay video mini documentary mentioned in the podcast was filmed and edited by Mike McCarthy and may be viewed on the Black and White Records YouTube channel. Join us next time for the Black and White Records podcast.